0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 19 verses 28 through 44. If you are using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you'll find these verses beginning on page 878. Two weeks ago, on the first Sunday of Advent, we focused on an unusual story, at least for this time of year, the story of Jesus' interaction with a man named Zacchaeus, the wee little man who climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. And that story helped us to understand why Jesus' birth was proclaimed as good news of great joy for all people. Because it showed us that Jesus was born that he might seek and to save the lost. This is why Jesus came. This is why his birth was good news. And then last week, on the second Sunday of Advent, we we focused on Jesus' parable of the, the nobleman who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. We saw that the, the nobleman clearly represented Jesus and that his, his journey into the far country was a picture of his ascension after his resurrection. When he came into the presence of the Ancient of Days and there received the name that is above all names, there received a kingdom that will know no end, a kingdom that will never pass away. And thus, that parable taught us that while Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and while He he laid down His life as a ransom for many, His kingdom would not appear immediately. It would not appear as soon as He arrived in Jerusalem. It would not even appear as soon as He rose again from the dead. But that there would be some delay. And that in that delay, we were to be faithful. We were to give expression to our faith by engaging in His business, by by serving His kingdom. Not in in an effort to earn our salvation, but rather as an expression of the faith that we have in Him as our good and gracious King. This morning we will continue our studies in Luke chapter 19 as we focus on what is traditionally called the triumphal entry. And again, this is a strange passage, at least for this time of year. It's familiar, we know it, but but we're used to hearing this passage proclaimed on Palm Sunday because that's the day that these events took place. But I hope to show you this morning that by anticipating Palm Sunday, we actually better understand what Advent is all about. And so let us read it together this morning. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. This is the very Word of God. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, we do ask that You would be with us as we turn our attention to Your Word this morning. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to, to understand and to receive your word, and that you would strengthen our wills to, to submit to it and to bring forth its fruit in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Even as we've sung this morning, when the angels appeared to the shepherds, they appeared singing, Glory to God in the highest. May His name be praised above all. May He be the object of all supreme worship. Why? Because He has brought peace on earth among those with whom He is pleased. Jesus' birth was announced as that which brought glory to God because it brings peace to earth. This is why His birth was announced as good news of of great joy for all people. And yet it's ironic that our celebrations of his birth tend to bring anything but peace. I don't know about you, but but peace isn't the word that I most normally associate with, with this season of the year. My son had a basketball game in Chattanooga yesterday, and so we wisely, foolishly, however you want to look at it, decided that we would run a few errands after the game, and we went in the general vicinity of Hamilton Place Mall, and it wasn't Peace-inducing. It wasn't peaceful as we we sat in traffic for for what seemed like forever to go a quarter of a mile. Our our celebrations of of the Savior's birth don't always lead to peace. We, We might say busy. We might say chaotic. We might say crazy. These are the words that we tend to associate with this time of year. And yet the angel said that his birth was to bring peace. What did they mean? Obviously, they weren't talking about the craziness of our daily schedules. Although, if we're honest, the chaos in our schedules is related to the peace they were talking about. And the chaos in our schedules may be a sign that that we don't know that peace as well as we ought. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to ask, what is this peace that Jesus brings and how do we receive it? How do we enter into this peace that so often eludes us. And in fact, this is the very question that Jesus is addressing, that he is, he is answering as He rides triumphantly into Jerusalem. So let's look at it together. And the first thing that I want you to see this morning is simply that, that fact, that, that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. We see it there in, in verse 28. It says, when he had said these things. And so he's, he's at Zacchaeus's house. He is in Jericho. And, and he has been telling these parables. He's been teaching about his, his coming kingdom and the salvation that he, he brings. And as he says these things, when he's finished saying these things, he, he goes on. He goes on from Jericho, headed towards Jerusalem. And that shouldn't come as a surprise to us. If we've been paying attention, we, we realize that Jesus has been headed to Jerusalem for some time. Back in chapter 9, Jesus told his, his disciples that this is where he was going to go. In fact, he, he said it more emphatically than that. Jesus didn't just tell his disciples that they were on a trip to Jerusalem, but he, he told them that he was setting his face to go to Jerusalem. He was resolving to go, and he was resolving not to be diverted. He would not be turned to the right or to the left. He is going to Jerusalem. There is nothing that is going to prevent him from coming there. And in fact, Luke chapter 9 through 19 tell the story of his trip. We we call it the journey to Jerusalem. And so when Jesus finally comes to Jerusalem in, in chapter 19, it is not by Chance it is, it is not an accident. It is, it is not a whimsical decision. But rather, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem is the result of a considered and deliberate decision. And what's more, Jesus makes that decision knowing exactly what is going to happen to him when he gets there. Jesus is not going to be betrayed in in Jerusalem, and He is not going to be condemned by the authorities and think to Himself, if only I would have known, I would have stayed away. If only I would have known this is what's going to happen, I would have gone somewhere else for the holidays. That's not what Jesus is thinking. We we do that. When, When things go badly, when things don't go the way that we expect, we think, if only I had known. If I had known it was going to take 45 minutes to get out of the mall parking lot, I might not have gone there. If I, if I had known that, that this was going to happen, if I had known that that was going to happen, I might have done things differently. That's what we think. But Jesus is in for no such surprise. He knows exactly what is going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. He's been telling his disciples along the way. Look with me back in, at chapter 9, verse 21. Turn back to Luke chapter 9. Verse 21. In Luke 9, uh, the, the previous paragraph, verses 18 through, through 20, Peter has, has just confessed that, that Jesus is the Christ of God, that He is the Messiah. They, they finally get it. In fact, that is the climax of the first nine chapters of this Gospel. For the first nine chapters of this Gospel, the question has been asked, Who is this child whom angels sing? Whom is this child who sits upon Mary's lap? Who is this one? And and Jesus has been showing us in, in a variety of ways that He is the Christ. He is Emmanuel. He is the Son of God come in the flesh to be with His people. He is the promised Savior. He is David's greater son. He is the seed of Abraham. All of the promises of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Him. Remember, it's how he began his ministry, speaking in his own synagogue, saying that that the passages in Isaiah which speak of the coming Savior of the Lord, that they are fulfilled in him. This is what the whole first half of the the gospel has been about, that Jesus is the Messiah. And finally, Peter confesses it. It's It's the climax of the first nine chapters. And as soon as the confession is made, Jesus charges them to tell no one. All right, now that you get it, don't tell anyone. And we're caught off guard. We we don't understand. Why would would Jesus tell them to, to be quiet? Why would He tell them to keep this news to themselves? It's because He knows what they don't know. He understands what they don't understand. And He says, now that you know that I'm the Christ, now that you know that I'm the promised Savior, let me tell you why I came. Let me tell you why I'm here. And he says to them there in verse 21, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. It's not what Peter was expecting. It's not what the other disciples were uh, expecting when they confessed him to be the Christ. And that is why Jesus tells them to be quiet and to listen you don't yet understand what you think you understand. You need to understand the full story. And really, throughout the rest of the journey, Jesus is, is trying to show them what type of Messiah He is. He's, he's trying to show them what it is that He has come to do. And, and He tells them again in verses 43 and, and 44, Jesus says to His disciples, let these words sink into your ears. You may not have used that exact phrase, but, but you've had that tone with your kids. Let these words sink into your ears. I've said it a million times before. I'm going to say it a million times again. You need to hear this. You need to listen. This is important. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. You see, Jesus knows that His disciples are slow to understand. And so He says it again with emphasis. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed and killed. He says it again in, in chapter 18, verses 31 and 34, this time making it clear that what is going to happen is going to happen when He gets to Jerusalem. In chapter 18, He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So what do we see as we, as we look through these, these chapters? We see that Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. He is, he is not ignorant. He is not naive. He knows and yet he goes there on purpose. He has set his face to go to Jerusalem. The question is why? Why is Jesus going to Jerusalem when he knows what is going to happen? And we find our answers in the next few verses. Look back with me at chapter 19. Look at the instructions that, that Jesus gives to his disciples in verse 29. We're told that when they drew near to Bethpage and and Bethany on the mount that is called Olivet, He sent to His disciples, saying, Go into the village that is in front of you, where on entering it you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. These are pretty specific instructions. Jesus is, is telling them, listen, you're going to go into the village, you're going to find uh, the donkey, a donkey on which no one has ever sat, and you are going to take it and you're going to bring it to me. And, and while you're doing that, someone's going to ask you, why are you stealing the donkey? You know, why, are you, why are you taking a donkey that doesn't belong to you? And the answer that you're to give is simply this, the Lord has need of it. These are the instructions, and we're told that the disciples do exactly but Jesus says, verse 32, So those who were sent went away, and they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners said to him, just as they, he had predicted, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And so Jesus gives them these very specific instructions, and they, they do exactly what He tells them to do. And it is, it is their following of these instructions that leads to the events that we call the triumphal entry. Look with me at verse 35. It says, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they, they set Jesus on it, and as He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. And as He was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King, Who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So Jesus gives instructions. The disciples follow the instructions, and it is those instructions that lead to the events of the triumphal event, lead to Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, being praised by his disciples. So, what's going on here? Well, the obvious thing is that this is not a spontaneous event. Jesus has has planned it. He has orchestrated it. These events unfold exactly according to Jesus' specific instructions. But why is Jesus so specific here? Well, He's specific because these events fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. These events fulfill a, a prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 9. And what we see then is that Jesus is intentionally fulfilling this prophecy. He is is intentionally doing what the prophet foretold. He intends to fulfill the prophecy in detail. The the correspondence is not accidental. It is is not coincidental. It is what Jesus is fulfilling. So, So let's turn to that prophecy and see what it's all about. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. You'll find it on page 797 if you're using the Pew Bibles. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Look what the prophet writes. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here it is. This is, the, this is the picture that, that Jesus fulfills. Rejoice greatly, for your king is coming to you. This is what the people celebrate. Their king has come. It's, it's what we sang and joy to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. This is what the people are doing. They are rejoicing that they have received their king. But, but why are they so happy? Well, again, notice what he says. Righteous and having salvation is he. he. He is coming in righteousness. He is coming to bring salvation to his people, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The people of Israel rejoice because their king is coming to them, not in judgment, but with Salvation. He he is coming to to put things right. And the sign of his intention, according to Zechariah, is that he comes riding on a donkey. He comes riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He comes not on a war horse. He does not come on his stallion. He does not come to overpower and subdue. He does not come to defeat and subject. No, he comes to bless. He comes to save. He comes to bring peace. He comes riding... On a donkey. In fact, notice what Zechariah says in in verse 10. He says, I will cut off the chariot. That's an instrument of war. That's like a a, a modern day tank. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. Now that sort of language is, is sometimes used to describe a curse. Sometimes God will, will take away the warhorse, and He will take away the, the chariot and He will break the spear and He will leave the swords blunted. He will leave the people defenseless. And it's a curse. He is, he is cursing them. He is leaving them defenseless against their enemies. But as God so often does, He takes the language of curse and He turns it into a blessing. And he says, that curse is going to be your blessing. I will cut off the chariot. I will cut off the war horse. I will break the battle bow. Not because I am leaving you defenseless, but because they are no longer needed. Because your enemies will be no more. Think of the language of of Isaiah. He speaks of the spears being turned into pruning hooks and the swords beaten into plowshares. That's the picture that Zechariah is painting. The instruments of war will be no more, not because you will be subject to your enemies, but because you will no longer have enemies. Because your enemies will have been defeated once and for all. That is the promise that the king brings. I come to bring peace on earth and goodwill That is what Jesus announces as He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, claiming to be the Christ, the King, the Son of David, who will rule His kingdom forever in all righteousness. A kingdom that will cover the earth with peace, even as the waters cover the sea. That is the promise. That is the picture. That's what Jesus came to to do. And notice how the people respond to this 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 great announcement. We're told that Jesus is, is lauded by his disciples. His disciples seem to, to get it, at least at some level. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the whole multitude of the nations begin quoting the Psalms. We we read it there in verse 37. They begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now we know from the rest of the story that the disciples don't fully understand all that is going on. We, we know that they are going to be dazed and confused by the events of the coming week. They still don't understand how Jesus is going to bring peace. They, they still don't understand that He must suffer and, and die. But they know who Jesus is. And they know what He has come to do. They know that He is the Messiah who brings peace to the people of God. And so they praise Him. The Pharisees, on the other hand, rebuke Him. We see this in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. How dare you let your disciples say such things about you? How dare you, you let them make such proclamations to you? They understand what's going on. They, they understand the symbolism of Jesus' ride. They, they understand the significance of the disciples' praise. They, they know what Jesus is claiming. They know what the disciples are, are saying. And they think it is preposterous. Maybe even blasphemy. And they think that Jesus should rebuke His disciples. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus says to them, "I tell you, if these were silent, if my disciples didn't praise me, the very stones would cry out. That's a truth that we need to, to wrap our minds around. It's such a strange image. We sometimes miss the significance of what's going on here. We just think about rock singing and it, and it seems sort of silly to us. But what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that the Pharisees may refuse to believe it. They may refuse to believe what is being proclaimed, But their unbelief doesn't make it untrue. Even if we do not acknowledge the truth about who Jesus is, all creation will proclaim the glory of His name. Our unbelief in no way determines whether or not He is who He claims to be. And this is a point that needs to be emphasized in our day. Truth is... What we believe either accords with the truth or it doesn't. But what we believe in no way determines the truth. The truth is. Truth is not determined by polls. It is not determined by surveys. It is not determined by what you like to believe or how you like to think. Truth is. And the truth is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. You may or may not acknowledge Him. And we, we saw the consequences of such decisions last Sunday. You may or may not acknowledge Him, but He is your King. He is the one who rules over your life. And you will one day be called to give an account to Him as your King. And so Jesus tells the Pharisees simply, Listen, you can make my disciples be quiet. But you cannot silence the proclamation of my praise, for I am the King. And if they do not worship me, all creation will proclaim my glory. And so the disciples laud him, the Pharisees rebuke him, and finally the people of Jerusalem reject him. They're they're excited when he draws near, but in the end, they end up rejecting him because he's not the Savior they were looking for. We we see this in, in verse 41. As Jesus draws near to the city, he weeps. Why? Why does Jesus weep? Well, look what he says. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Why does Jesus weep? He weeps because the people of Jerusalem don't get it. They don't have eyes to see the significance of what Jesus is is doing. They, They don't understand what is happening. And because they do not get it, because they do not see the truth of who Jesus is, Jesus says the days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And not one stone will be left upon another because you did not know the day of your visitation. You did not know the day that God visited you with salvation. You did not know the day that He came to bring you peace. And because they do not know who Jesus is, because they will not open their eyes to see, they will know His curse instead of His blessing. For them, His coming is not a day of of rejoicing, but a day of terror. Not a day of light, but a day of darkness. Not a day of life, but a day of death. You see, Jesus' coming is good news of great joy for all people who believe in Him. For all who will receive Him as King. And so the obvious question that we must wrestle with this morning, the obvious question that we must ask ourselves is simply this. Do we know this day the things that make for peace? Do we know the things that, that will bring us peace? We all want peace. We, we desire peace. We, we long for it, but do we know how to get it? I think many today believe that, that peace will come through a change in their circumstances. They, they think their problem is circumstantial, and therefore they, they think the solution is a change in those circumstances. Some think it's that they need just a little bit more money to, to pay the bills. Others think they need a job that doesn't numb their mind. Others think they just need good friends around them so they can enjoy the times when they're, they're not working. Others think that if they could just get their spouse to be the person who they want them to be, then... They would know peace. I'm sure you can fill in the blank with your own list. However, I think we understand that even if we were to to get everything we wanted, even if we were able to write the script of our lives, it would not be what we were looking for. Such changes to our circumstances do not bring the the peace that we long for. We, We know this from experience, do we not? We know that when we finally get what we've set our heart upon, the peace doesn't last very long. You experienced this as a kid on Christmas time, did you not? You're looking forward this time of year to to those things that you're going to get, and you're going to love them on Christmas morning. And you may love them for a few days after that, but the, the peace they bring is not everlasting. It's not too long before you start making your next list. Some of you kids will experience that even this year. You have your heart set on that perfect gift. And you think that this is what's going to make you happy. This is what's going to bring you satisfaction. And yet you know the peace will not last. It's not the peace that our hearts truly crave. Now hear me when I say it's not wrong to to seek a new job. It's not wrong to try to alter your, your circumstances. If those opportunities come, take advantage of them. But understand this, circumstantial changes will not bring you the peace that you desire. Solomon understood this. He, he talks about it in the book of Ecclesiastes. He said that he, he, did not, he denied himself nothing. Any pleasure he could think of, any pursuit that he thought would satisfy, he went after it with gusto. And in the end, it was all a chasing after the wind. In the end, it was all vanity. Jesus said much the same thing when he said that a man can gain the whole world and yet lose his soul. And certainly there was a man named Asaph who, who wrote a psalm. Psalm 73. Who experienced this firsthand. Asaph tells us at the beginning of the psalm, you can look it up later, Asaph tells us at the beginning of Psalm 73 that, that he envied the wicked, that his, that his foot had almost slipped because when he looked around him, he, he saw the, the life of the wicked, he saw the way they were at ease, he saw the things that they were enjoyed, and he wondered, why don't I have that? And he thought to himself, I have kept my hands pure in vain. But then something happens. We're told that he enters into the sanctuary and he remembers. He entered into the sanctuary and he discerned their end. And so Asaph, who envied the wicked, remembers when he enters into worship. When he enters into the sanctuary. What is it that he sees? What is it that Asaph sees in the sanctuary? Almost certainly what he sees is the sacrifices. He sees animals being slaughtered upon the altar. And when he sees those animals die, what does he remember? He he remembers the end of the wicked. You see, the, the sacrifices show us that the wages of sin is death. They show us that, that those who will not honor God as God may prosper for a while. They may enjoy good circumstances for a time, but in the end they will be blown away like the chaff. They cannot withstand the Lord's judgment. Their end is destruction. That's not the, no, the message we normally hear around Christmas. But it's, but it's what we're reminded of. We're reminded that the end of the wicked is destruction. That's what Asaph saw when he entered into the sanctuary. But there's something else. What else did Asaph remember? He also remembered that there is hope. Because it wasn't the wicked whose blood he saw spilt in the temple. But rather it was the blood of an innocent substitute. It was the substitute's blood that was poured out upon the altar. And so, yes, in the temple he saw the end of the wicked, but he also saw the hope of the righteous. He saw that another can die in the place of the sinner. The righteous live not because they are righteous in themselves, not because they have established their own righteousness by their good works, but rather they live because another has died in their place. They live because the blood of the lamb covers their sin and turns away the wrath of God. This is what Paul means when he says that the righteous live by faith. But of course the lambs that Asaph saw being slaughtered in the sanctuary, they were but a shadow of what is necessary. The author of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot possibly take away the guilt of sins. And that is why Jesus came. Jesus came. That's why He went to Jerusalem knowing what was going to happen. He went there to lay down His life for us. He came to give His life as the ransom for many. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His death was, was not unexpected. It was not an unfortunate accident of history. It was on purpose. It was for us. And that is the good news of Christmas. You see, it's no accident that, that the Gospels spend you know, so much of their time talking about the last week of Jesus' life. They do that because the last week is the reason He came. Why was Jesus born? He was born that He might ride into Jerusalem to lay down His life as the sacrifice for sins. And it is through His death that we have peace with God. Not a subjective feeling of peace, but an objective peace. The wrath of God is turned away. The record of debts is is nailed to the cross. Our debt is canceled. We are justified by faith. And having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. And it is knowing that peace that gives us peace in the present. You see, if God is for you, who can be against you? This, this season, there are probably many things on your plate, many things making you anxious, many, many things disrupting your peace, and it's not just the traffic at the mall. There are things far more substantial than that. Some of you are worried about your, your job. Some of you are worried about making ends meet. Some of you are worried about your health, or the, the health of someone you love. There are, there are so many things in this fallen world, there are so many things in this present evil age that threaten our peace. And Jesus says, do you know what makes for peace? Do you know what can give you peace even in the midst of the fiery trial? Do you know what can give you peace even as you pass through the high waters? It is that God is with you and that He is for you and that He is working for your good. But how can you know? How can you know that the Maker of heaven and earth is truly your help? You can know that He is truly your help because He did not spare His own Son But he put him forward as a sacrifice for our sins. And if he did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all good things? That's the good news of Christmas. The good news of Christmas is that Jesus came. Jesus came as a savior for sinners, Jesus came as the one who reconciles us to the Father. Jesus came as the one who makes us heirs of the kingdom. Jesus came as the one who lays down his life as the ransom for many. He went to Jerusalem to die that we might live. And because he did, that is why we celebrate this as good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. And we thank You for Your grace. And we ask that You would cause these truths to fill our hearts to overflowing. That we might proclaim the wonders of Your Gospel to the praise of Your glorious name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.